our brother, and our focus is going to be primarily on verse 26. Uh, basically, we had planned, for those of you who are not aware, basically last week and this week, we are intentionally dealing with things pertaining to the Lord's Supper because starting next week, as a Redeemer Community Church, we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper every week. And there are a whole slew of things that maybe could be questions about the Lord's Supper. How do we do it? Why do we do it? All of those things are things that Aaron sought to deal with last week. And I was sort of joking with Manny and Aaron last week when we were sitting over there. And it was we were trying to decide, okay, how do we want to order this? What do we want to do? And it was like, okay, we need one message that's just like theological, going to lay out all the truth, going to deal with all the biblical stuff. And then we want another message where we're just going to get people encouraged. As, you know, they want to see Christ. They want to see the glory of the supper and just want to do it. And uh, it was fitting, brethren, that, that we ordered it the way we did. Uh, I'm coming in as the uh, coach who's supposed to come in before the game's going to start and rally everybody up and, and get you encouraged to take part in the Lord's Supper. And I'm, I'm excited to do that. I really am. The fact of the matter is, and, and it was kind of funny because Justina pointed it out to me one time after... Uh, I don't remember what week it was, but she said, it's so encouraging to listen to each of you guys because you all preach in very different ways. And uh, it's really very true. We all deal with things very differently. And I'm excited to deal with this the way that I am. Um, I have found great encouragement in what I saw here. And to be honest with you, all of the preparation for the last two weeks, Aaron and I bounced things off of one another. We knew where each of us wanted to go. But ultimately, I didn't know how I wanted to get there. I knew I wanted what the end goal was, but I didn't know how to get there. And I just scoured scripture. I was reading the Gospels. I was reading all over the place and just trying to get direction on what to do. And I, I was reading this passage and I, I came to the end where Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it hit me. It hit me with some force. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know at the time how that was going to develop, but I knew that's what I wanted to deal with. So the, the title for this message is The Lord's Supper, Proclaiming the Lord's Death. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that. Um, I want you to see this purpose in the Lord's Supper, and I want you to rejoice in it. I want you to see that it's the most glorious purpose that could be given to the Lord's Supper. And it's Paul's purpose for us to partake in the Lord's Supper. And that when we do so, we would proclaim Christ's death. But here's, here's the deal. I, to do that properly and to deal with that purpose properly, I feel like I need to go back a little bit. I need to lay somewhat of a foundation. Because if we're going to proclaim something rightly, we need to remember it rightly. We, we cannot proclaim anything that we do not know nor remember. So we need to go back and lay somewhat of a foundation. So that's what I intend to do right out of the gate. We're basically going to do two things. I want to lay that foundation of you seeing Christ as the crucified Messiah for the sins of his people. And then I want to come back after that and look at what he means. That, that in partaking of the Lord's Supper... 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to do that. I want you to remember him, brethren. I want you to remember his death on behalf of sinners so that when you are partaking next week, if you're here and in this church and part of this church and you trust in Jesus Christ, that next week when you partake, you are not just remembering something, but you're proclaiming it. Proclaiming Christ in all of his greatness. And so we're going to go back and remember, and here's how we're going to do this. I want you to go to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read pretty much a long section here uh, in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22, all the way through chapter 15. And I know that that's a long section. I know that this is abnormal. You do not typically hear sermons where two whole chapters, and they're long chapters, are read in the middle of a sermon. I know that's somewhat abnormal, but as I was preparing, I was convicted, brethren. I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I preach and teach on Jesus' death and sacrifice and talk about some things and then come over here and talk about what it means to proclaim it? And I was convicted, brethren, not to just get up here and read this to you, that God himself inspired this story and God needs no help uh, telling a glorious story of redemption and salvation. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need anybody's help. And so if we're going to come and we're going to learn and remember, brethren, of what Christ did, what better way to do it than to come and simply read what God wrote for us in this book about the sufferings and the subsequent death of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this, and then after that we're going to come back to that passage in 1 Corinthians, and I want to lay out for you a little bit what I think Paul means when he says that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We need to remember it so that we might proclaim it. And my prayer all week, brethren, has been that this message would not only encourage you in the truths of Scripture, but that you would remember it when we come back every week to partake in the Lord's Supper, that you would recall these things. You would recall the Gospels. You would recall the death of Jesus Christ. You would recall His sufferings. You would remember. I want you to do that. I want you to glory. Now hear me on this. I want you to glory in the death of your Savior. Not in the fact that he was murdered, that was evil and wicked what they had done to him. But I want you to glory in the fact and celebrate, brethren, the redemption that was purchased for God's people of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so before we do that, I want you to do something else. Before we read, we, we can't just jump in here. Because there's a lot of stuff that came before this. And here's the reality. I want us to recall everything that had come up to this point. Everything in Jesus' life all the way up to here, because Jesus' sufferings did not begin at the cross. Nor did they begin here, as we're going to read in the garden. They began long before this, brethren. They began long before this, when Jesus Christ, the Son, the eternal Son of God, left His post in heaven and came to earth. He left the presence of the Father. He emptied Himself of every divine right that He was entitled to. He did not owe you or me to come here. And yet He did it. He made Himself of no reputation. He took on, the Word says, the form of a servant. 
Brethren, he came in no glorious manner. He came from no glorious family. He was born in no glorious town and had no glorious family, no glorious country. Brethren, he had no glory. This is, the scripture says, the king of glory. And yet, while he was here, he had no glory to speak of. He says, and it says in Isaiah that he was one from whom men hid their faces. This was not a man that walked around. Remember Moses, he always had the veil over his face when he came down from the mountain. He shone, the people knew. Jesus never walked around with a veil on his face. He had no glory to speak of when he dwelt among the sin of this world. And the Bible seems to sum his life up in these words. We read it in Isaiah and we sang it in that song. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible does not... The Bible gives characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ and they do not say a man of frivolous, happy joy. Did Jesus have joy? He most certainly did. Did Jesus laugh? I guarantee you Jesus laughed. But brethren, the Bible actually gives characteristics for him and they're not those. They say he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And there's a reason for that, brethren. He came for a purpose. Remember, Aaron read the passage last week. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That was his purpose. He was despised, rejected by men. Brethren, he was poor. He was often run down by crowds, demanding signs, demanding miracles. All they wanted often was a fill of bread, often pummeled with endless questions, demands for all sorts of things, and brought to such exhaustion. Now, I think we read through this and we don't recognize it. But brethren, brought to such exhaustion that he could actually sleep in a boat in the middle of a sea, in the middle of a storm, worn out by the demands of everything around him. He was ridiculed by his family to such a degree that they thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was out of his mind. He was stalked and hunted by the Pharisees and rejected by those even in his own hometown. And finally, at the very end, when he is to endure such tortures that we will see in this book, he's abandoned by every one of his disciples. He tells him that they will do that. They don't believe him that they will do that. And then they do that. And just to add to all of this, I want you to consider this for a moment. Consider the sheer horror of life lived day in and day out among sinners for this man. This, this was the perfect, righteous one. The one who from eternity past had no dealings with sin. Who only dwelt in perfection and holiness with the Father. And then he comes and he is surrounded on every side by sin. This is the Christ who has a conscience supremely moral and pure and sensitive above every other person. And day in and day out, he is bombarded from every angle, all manner of sin, drunkenness, greediness, anger, sexual perversion, even profanity and cursings of his very own name, day in and day out. 
death, corruption, every form of misery that you could possibly imagine besieging him on every side. Listen, you know what was said of Lot in 2 Peter? It says Lot, it says righteous Lot was tormented in his soul day after day of the unrighteous deeds that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says righteous Lot was tormented in his soul. Now listen, brethren, you can go back and you can read the account in Genesis. And I'll tell you right now, you will not come out of Genesis saying righteous Lot. And yet the Bible says that man was tormented day in and day out of the deeds that gone on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And brethren, if that be the case of Lot, a sinner like you and I, how much more the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, daily dwelling in the midst of such wickedness and sin. What a horror to do it. And yet he did it. And he did it for his people. Such humiliation, such condescension from the place that he was. You remember how he prayed in John chapter 17. He says, Father, bring me back again to the glory that I had with you before the world was. He, he desired to go back to that. That was his rightful place. Brethren, this is what it means that the perfect Son of God came to dwell with us. He came and dwelt among us. And brethren, we need to remember it. And now I want us to read this. We're going to read Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 22. I'm going to read this for us. And I, when we do, brethren, I want you to remember this. This is a weighty portion of our scriptures. This is a very passionate portion of our scriptures. And we need to tread here with reverence. This is not a time for you to let your mind wander off. This is not a time for you to check your phone and your text messages. This is a time for you to listen. This is a time for you to set your mind and hear about what God did for sinners through Jesus Christ. Step into this with some reverence, brethren. We're going to read this weighty section of our Bibles. Mark chapter 14. Starting in verse 22. We read, up, we, we read some sections up to this last week. Jesus has gathered with his disciples, right? Coming up to the eve of his crucifixion. And he is going to eat with them a meal called the Passover, which was a meal that the Jews had eaten in celebration of their exodus out of slavery to Egypt. So as they gathered to eat the Passover, here is what we find. Mark 14, starting in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one who I will kiss is the man. The one who I will kiss is the man. Brethren, what a sign of betrayal. You remember well the Proverbs 27, verse 6, profuse. The Bible says profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he had usually done for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. If you recall, in the book of John, Pilate comes out with a bowl full of water, and he intends to uh, ritually cleanse his hands from what he was doing. But brethren, his hands were not cleaned. We often quote this verse out at the abortion clinic, Proverbs 24. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter, those who are being led away to death. And it says after this, Behold, if you say, I did not know, I did not hear, the Lord will call it into account, brethren. And the Lord called this into account. You can be sure of that. Though Pilate sought to wash his hands clean, his hands were not clean. It says here that he wanted to satisfy the crowd. He was not overly concerned about whether or not Jesus was innocent, which he was. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, 
And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Four words. And they crucified him. And he divided and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's about nine in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right hand and one at his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him one to another, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, this is three hours, three hours he was hanging on that cross at this point. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and, and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already been dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses saw where he was laid. I want us to pray for a minute. Father, this message, this story of our Lord enduring what He endured for the sake of His people, God, it is no small thing. Lord, I don't want, and I don't want my brothers and sisters in here to forget that. To forget the glory of the gospel. To forget what Christ did on our behalf. And that when we partake in your supper, that we would not rightly remember it. Father, please constantly bring to our memory this truth that Jesus Christ, His disciples abandoned Him. He sits in that garden and He pleads that you would take away this cup from Him. He's brought in and He's mocked and, and the trial is just... Everything about it is false, false witnesses, false accusations. And then he's taken in by these evil soldiers and he's mocked and he's beaten and he's spit on. And then he goes to that cross. And all the horror and the, the 
terribleness of what it means to be crucified in that day. And all you leave for us is, and he was crucified. As though to explain such a thing, we wouldn't even be able to handle it. Lord, help us to remember the suffering of our Lord and his death on behalf of sinners. Amen. Now I want you to go back again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now that we have read and remembered sufferings and death of our Lord, I want us to see this. I'm not going to read it again, but I do want to just reiterate what's happening here. Paul is explaining to them by way of reminder what he has already explained to them. He wants to remind them that what we just read on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he inaugurated what we now call the Lord's Supper. And what he did is he, he told his disciples to partake. He gave them bread and wine. And he told them, this is my body. This is my blood. You take this and eat it and drink it in remembrance of me. And as Aaron talked about last week, He's got the bread and the wine, and he's, he's using them as an illustration, symbols to illustrate his death. And how do they do that? Well, they represent the fact that his body broken for us, his blood poured out as the new covenant for his people. And as I said earlier, I want you to see here, verse 26, the purpose of for our partaking of the Lord's Supper. And this is what I want you to grasp, brethren. This is what was glorious to me. Seems Paul's purpose is stated in verse 26. And you see it there, that when we partake, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And, and really, we, I, I, listen, I, as I began to work through this, I really began by writing that there were two different purposes. Not necessarily different in total distinction, but different alike, but different. Two different ones. And I don't think that's the case. Because you could, we could rightly say, maybe in verse 25, well, what about here? He quotes Jesus, and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Would that not be a purpose? Jesus is saying, you take the supper, and it's remembrance of me. That's the purpose of it. But I don't think that's it. I think what Paul is doing is saying in verse 25, he's quoting the words of Christ in the Gospels, to do it in remembrance is a means by which we accomplish the full purpose, namely the proclamation of the Lord's death. And I want you convinced of this. So I want to dig in here for a minute. I want to examine this a little bit more. And listen, just to be clear, it would be true, would it not, that, that partaking in the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of the Lord's death. It is a remembrance ceremony. But what I'm arguing is that that's not all it is. It's not just a remembrance ceremony. 
This seems to just be a springboard for Paul. He takes this and he, 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 I mean, if it may be possible to say so, it seems as though Paul amplifies the whole thing and actually gives the Lord's Supper even more meaning than it might have already had as a remembrance ceremony or a commemoration of the Lord's sufferings and death. And listen, we went back and we read all that in Mark, and we read it for a purpose. We have to remember this. But essentially what Paul is saying is that not only are you to remember Christ's sufferings and death, but in your partaking of the Lord's Supper, you are actually proclaiming those things that you have remembered. It doesn't just end at the remembering. He moves it forward. He says, you're proclaiming, you're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and his death for sinners when you partake in the supper. And isn't it interesting to note this? Paul does not say this in terms of something that you're supposed to do. He really says it in terms of something that just simply is. You see that? As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It just is. He doesn't say this is something you should do. This is something you need to fabricate or, gen uh, or, or generate or fabricate. He says that just is something that happens. When you partake of it, you proclaim. That's just, that's just there. And so the question then becomes, well, what exactly does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death? Well, I want you to think about this. You get this word used in a lot of places in the Bible. I'm just, I got two here. Acts 13.38. Paul is preaching in the synagogue. You don't even really need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. Acts 13.38. Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, and he says this. Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then, among other places, you see it here, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, Him, by talking about Christ, Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, brethren, quite clearly, there's something more here than just remembrance or recalling. This is not Paul just recalling in his mind the gospel. There is something external happening here in the proclamation of the gospel. And when Paul says that the Lord's Supper, when we partake of it, that we are proclaiming Jesus' death, there is something external happening that goes beyond the mere remembering which happens in the individual Christian. Brethren, you are to remember. Jesus says, remember, recall, think about it, dwell upon it, think of the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. But as we collectively remember and we partake, brethren, there is a proclamation happening of the death of Jesus Christ. And listen, as we 
as we come here to a close, here is what I want you to grasp. I certainly want you to remember the sufferings of Jesus Christ, but brothers and sisters, I want you to remember when we partake next week that what we are doing is making real proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ. Think about this. As a herald would come out, a herald comes out, he's a servant of the king, he comes out, the, the king gives him a decree, and the herald comes out to proclaim the decree of the king. And when we come forth in the supper, brethren, we come forward like heralds, proclaiming not the decree of our king, we come forward proclaiming the death of our king. And isn't that something? It's an odd thing to proclaim, is it not? You think about, we're proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. That is an odd, you would not think a herald in a kingdom coming running forth into the middle of the open square and proclaiming the death of the king. And yet that's what we're doing. That's what Paul says we're doing. It's an odd thing to proclaim. And even to add to it, to add to the whole intention of what's being said, the word proclaim here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six could actually rightly be translated as celebrate. So now the question is even more intriguing, right? Why would we want to proclaim and celebrate the death of Jesus Christ? Well, brethren, the, the answer is really quite simple. Brethren, this is, the, this is the cornerstone of our faith. The death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, brethren. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. It doesn't exist. That's the message we glory in. The death of our King is the message that we glory in. It's quite contrary to the rest of the world. And quite contrary, mind you, to the rest of the false gods that other people worship. They don't worship a God that was sacrificed for them. They could never believe in such a thing. The other so-called gods of other religions are not like our God. And the other so-called saviors of other religions are not like our Savior. Moses says this, Deuteronomy 32, 31. He says, their rock is not as our rock. We glory, brethren, in the fact that our God not only has not cast us off forever, but He came to us, and He came for us. Our Lord came to us, and He died for us, and by His death, we are offered every blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians says. You are offered in the death of Jesus Christ, not just the forgiveness of your sins. Brethren, will you think about that for a minute? We often think that, that it's like the only thing that comes in that good news of Jesus Christ is, no, you just get forgiveness of your sins. It's like, well, that's true, and that's a glorious message. But the Bible says you're offered everything in the heavenly places. All things are yours in Christ. What a glorious message. And when we come in, brethren, the message we proclaim in the Lord's Supper is that in Jesus Christ's death, He bought for Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I want you to see this. 
Go back, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Actually, go to verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews. And folly to Gentiles. You see, brethren, we want to preach Christ crucified. And we will preach Christ crucified from this pulpit. But what you need to remember is that you also, in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, in action, are preaching Christ crucified. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. So as we look forward to that, I want you to remember the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Recall them to your mind. And so that when we, when, we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, you are truly able to remember and then proclaim in your action and celebrate the death of Jesus Christ, that He would be greatly glorified because He will receive the reward for His sufferings, brethren. He will receive it. Let's pray.